You're listening to Strange New England. America's first ghost, the Machiasport haunting. The three men made their way down the lonely trail that skirted the fields outside of Machiasport, Maine. These hills were wide open and bare, but the trees in the distance belied a deep forest toward the west, and if they listened intently, they might have heard the waves in nearby Machias Bay. It was dusk and the last light of the setting sun burned a bright red gash across the gray sky. One of the three was a skeptic, certain that the events which had been occurring for the past six years were nothing more than an elaborate hoax played out to fool the locals into believing that it was possible to speak with the dead. His mission was to stop this foolish dependence on chicanery and parlor tricks and get the people back to believing properly about the living and the dead. The other two had seen the spirit before, even had conversations with it, but that had been in the confines of the cellar of Captain Blaisdell and his family. They knew it was real. They were there as witnesses. Besides, this meeting was something else entirely, and none of the three knew how this rendezvous with the dead would turn out. The year was 1806. For the past six years, a ghost had been speaking from beyond the grave to hundreds of locals in the Machiasport area. This was a good 50 years before the Fox Girls of Hydesville, New York, began hearing rappings in their house and started the American Spiritualist Movement, which still lingers in our modern world as the National Spiritualist Association of Churches. Situated on the edge of the new country, this out-of-the-way Maine hamlet would serve as the locale for the largest mass witnessing of a ghost in American history. Reverend Cummings, the skeptic, on his way to the rendezvous with the ghost, claimed that he had his doubts. What would happen on the edge of that barren field that night would change his world forever and help him prepare a new view of life after death that took the world by storm when the Fox Girls popularized the idea of communicating with the dead more than half a century later. The Machiasport ghost has been called America's first ghost, but that would be stretching the truth. Certainly, the New World had its share of hauntings long before 1799. Native Americans have passed down their stories of spirits by the oral tradition for centuries. Folklorists can call upon hundreds of stories of hauntings and specters from each of the original 13 colonies. The difference between these hauntings and the Machiasport haunting is that they were old and based upon memory, whereas appearances of the ghost of the woman in the cellar could be dated and witnessed by dozens of living people. Also, the ghost appeared at a time when science and the value of impartial observation was just becoming valued over the time-honored belief and superstition. 
The other difference between this haunting and the others that came before it was that this ghost wanted to talk, and well over 200 people claimed to have heard her spoken words. Well over 100 also claimed to have seen her while she spoke. Stranger still, many in the crowd knew her while she had been alive. It was like she had never died. If you've ever spent time alone in a house, you may recall that there are moments when you can swear you've heard a voice. You can't really make out the words, and if you live in the city, it's easy to write it off as a conversation between two people walking outside as they pass your home. But if you live in the country, it's harder to find an explanation for such a sound. It can leave you with goosebumps and a sudden urge to get to the car and go for a long, long ride. Many people who claim to live in haunted houses describe experiences of hearing the mumbled sounds of people talking, but it's often faint and indistinct and comes and goes quickly. Most people go about their business and try not to ponder the cause. Such was the case for Abner Blaisdell and his family at their house in Machiasport in the year 1799. Blaisdell was a respected member of the community and a regular churchgoer. He wasn't one to fall for gimmicks and foolhardy ideas. But that didn't stop him and his family from being the one place in the community where the spirit decided to take up residence and begin talking. At first, the voice was quiet and almost not there. They weren't enough to spook the captain and his family, these sounds, merely enough to inconvenience them and bother them slightly. The sounds and noises went on for months. They got used to them. And then, on the cold day of January 2nd, 1800, the voice suddenly gained a more sophisticated manner of speaking. They could now distinctly hear words. Stranger still, the sound seemed to be coming from their cellar. The voice sounded like a woman's. With stout heart, Captain Blaisdell entered the cellar and listened. When he had heard enough, he asked the disembodied voice who she was. I'm the dead wife of Captain George Butler, born Nellie Hooper, replied the voice, which has been described as shrill but mild and pleasant. Nellie Butler had indeed died a few years earlier at the tender age of 21. Captain Blaisdell was not a medium, yet he was able to clearly speak to someone who clearly wasn't physically there with him in the cellar. He knew both of the men whose names were mentioned by the spirit, and he also knew that neither of them would appreciate the idea that their dead beloved Nellie was back among them and able to talk. Her father, Dennis Hooper, lived only six miles down the road. Her widower, George, lived nearby as well. The voice requested an audience with the two men and asked Captain Blaisdell to send for them forthwith. When asked why she was in the cellar and not in the house above, the voice explained that, quote, I don't want to frighten the children. There aren't many instances of the sudden appearances of spirits who can simply speak to the living. 
Today, when such ideas are contemplated, one thinks of this kind of communication as impossible, or at least impossible without the intercession of mediums, Ouija boards, trances, and seances. And yet, here was an instance of a simple man having a conversation with a dead woman he might have passed on the street merely a few years before. He reluctantly did as the spirit asked and sent for the two men. When they arrived, he sheepishly explained why he had summoned them in the dead of winter. Abner Blaisdell communicated to the pair that they'd been hearing things for about six months and only recently had the sounds turned into a full-bodied human voice. Father and son-in-law listened with what one can only imagine was trepidation and suspicion. But there was only one way to prove the otherwise stalwart Captain Blaisdell wrong and set this matter to rest... They'd have to go into the cellar and have a chat with their Nelly, or not. If they heard nothing, then that would be the end of that. When they emerged from the cellar, they were pale and wide-eyed. After asking the disembodied voice a series of questions that only Nellie Butler could have answered, they were convinced that this was indeed her spirit come back to commune with the living. She knew the answer to every question. Later, her father would write, I believe it was her voice. A few days later, Abner's son came into the house visibly shaken, claiming that on the way home he'd seen a woman in white floating above the fields. Things escalated when the following day the voice in the cellar loudly accosted the son, asking him why he hadn't said hello to her when he saw her the night before. In such a small community, it didn't take long for word to get around that Captain Blaisdell had a ghost in his cellar who could talk to you. As the weather turned warmer and over the course of the next few years, scores of people visited the Blaisdell house and walked down the steps into the cellar to listen to Nellie Butler. And what did she talk about? She spoke of redemption, of righteousness, and she also gave predictions. She prophesied that her widower would marry a Blaisdell and that they would have a child soon after. She spoke of family matters to people she'd known in life and gave advice. She predicted correctly the deaths of at least three people. She took questions from the people and claimed to be neither a demon nor a witch. She's quoted to have said to a group of visitors, Although my body is consumed and turned to dust... My soul is as much alive as before I left my body. She wasn't there to scare them, but to guide them. For a ghost, she seemed quite pleasant. People would crowd into the cellar and sing hymns, pray, and call to the spirit to appear, and eventually she would take form, indistinct at first, but eventually they saw her, and she would move about and among them. It was a religious experience for many of those involved, a deeply spiritual moment that impressed upon everyone in attendance that there was life after death and that they did not need to doubt any longer. Then in May of 1800, in front of at least 20 witnesses, she took a step forward from wherever she resided and materialized in front of a crowd. She was wearing a shining white garment. One of those present wrote, quote, At first the apparition was a mere mass of light, and then it grew into a personal form, about as tall as myself. The glow of the apparition had a constant tremulous motion. At last, the personal form became shapeless, expanded every way, and then vanished in a moment. 
Later, she made a request that her child be reburied with new rites, which was done. Those in attendance at the reinterment of the body claimed that she appeared there next to them at the graveside to share in the moment. But such association with the dead would not stand forever. The local townsfolk were becoming used to Nellie's presence, even visiting her on a regular basis, like they might call upon some old friend. There was one person in the town, however, who was determined that this must be an elaborate hoax, and he was bound and determined to prove it. The Reverend Abraham Cummings did not believe in ghosts. As far as he was concerned, the spirits of the dead didn't linger. They went to perdition or paradise and could not choose to stay. As far as he was concerned, the only living person who had ever died and returned to tell about it was quite familiar to him. The locals didn't need Nellie to prove the existence of a life after death when they had the Son of God. Cummings was an educated man, too, a graduate of Brown University in Providence and a man who believed in progress instead of superstition. It was time to end this nonsense once and for all. And as an educated man, he would use the light of reason to shine in that dark cellar and end this series of events. He began by interviewing his parishioners, at least 27 of them, each one certain of the veracity of Nellie's existence. They all told the same story. A spirit had returned from the edge of life to tell them truths and guide them. That didn't deter Reverend Cummings. The time had come to take on the spirit head on. And though he had avoided meeting with Nellie because agreeing to do so would simply prove her existence to his parishioners, he set up a meeting of sorts away from the cellar and the prying eyes of the public. He asked her father and a friend to accompany him on a walk. Captain Blaisdell asked Nellie's spirit to meet the reverend in the open in a field near the house but away from the road. She agreed to a personal interview. In his book, Unbidden Guests, Author William Oliver Stephen writes of the meeting. He gathered his information from Reverend Cummings' own writings. He writes, quote, About 12 rods ahead of Reverend Cummings, there was a slight knoll where he could see a group of white rocks showing dimly against the dark turf. Two or three minutes later, one of those white rocks had risen off the ground and had now taken the shape of a globe of light with a rosy tinge. As he went toward it, he kept an eye on it for fear it might disappear. But he hadn't gone more than five paces when the glowing mass flashed right to where he was and resolved itself into the shape of a woman, but small, the size of a child of seven. He thought, you're not tall enough for the woman who has been appearing among us. Immediately the figure expanded to normal size, and now she appeared glorious with rays of light shining from her head all about and reaching to the ground. This was the last time anyone saw or heard from the spirit of Nellie Butler. Apparently her connection with a man of God was enough to finish her business, but it was only the beginning for Reverend Abraham Cummings. From that moment on, he was transformed. The greatest skeptic had become the greatest believer. Here was definite proof that life continued after death. This ghostly appearance only served to fuel the fire of the good reverend's devotion to the precepts of the Christian religion. He left the Machiasport area and traveled widely, preaching about the life of the world to come as evidenced by the visitation he had witnessed. He recorded the incident in the book he published in 1826 entitled 
Immortality proved by the testimony of sense, in which is contemplated the doctrine of specters and the existence of a particular specter addressed to the candor of this enlightened age. When we consider that America became immersed in spiritualism and the idea of speaking with the dead as part of the mainstream, we know that Reverend Cummings was recalling a set of events that gave credence to this rather radical set of paranormal ideas that took America by storm. Spiritualist churches rose up seemingly overnight, and with the loss of so much life in the coming years as a result of the American Civil War, the stage was set for an entire nation of grieving people to seek communication with their dearly departed loved ones. Years later, in 1888, the founders of the spiritualist movement itself, the Fox Sisters, would reject the idea of spiritualism, claiming that it all started as a hoax with an apple tied to a string making wraps on the floor. The Fox Sisters eschewed their previous claims, calling the modern movement, quote, an absolute falsehood from beginning to end as the flimsiest of superstitions, the most wicked blasphemy known into the world. Though the sisters died soon after in abject poverty, the idea of mediumship and speaking to the dead gave them a comfortable income over the years. Motivated and managed by their older sister, they turned their ruse into a regular enterprise. Even though they claimed that the entire idea of spiritualism was a hoax, that didn't stop the spiritualist movement from continuing to grow. Vestiges of it still live on today in America and the world. But what about the Machias Port haunting? No one made any money as a result of that, though it gave the Reverend Cummings a reason to continue his life's work with more vigor and passion for years to come. What makes the Machias Port haunting important in the history of American paranormal studies is its early date and the number of witnesses who wrote about and claimed to have seen and spoken with the dead woman known to the world as Nellie Butler. No other haunting has had so many witnesses. Also, the mood of this haunting was enlightening rather than frightening, which is singularly rare and seems to compare only to such events as the appearance of the Virgin Mary in Catholic circles. We can even make the claim that this was the very first documented haunting in the history of the United States as a country. Because these events took place in an earlier time, modern people might tend to think of them as slightly foolish perhaps even as a kind of parlor fiction designed to entertain listeners on long, dark nights by the fireside. Whatever people heard and saw in that cellar in Machiasport in the year 1800 and beyond, they believed it was a ghost. These weren't people prone to flights of fancy. These people were the epitome of the Yankee hands-on, problem-solving, no-nonsense spirit, practical in every way. If the appearance of Nellie Butler's spirit was a fabrication created by the Blaisdell family, they must have been among the greatest charlatans ever to walk the earth or beyond to fool that population. The questions remain. Was this a ghost or a demonic intruder? Was this hope from heaven? Or was this a lie perpetrated to lure believers into a false hope? How could such things be? You've been listening to Strange New England.